Hey, Chapo fans, this is Matt Cushbaum Christman coming to you uh, on tape delay from Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, after the great response we got last week from Felix's uh, solo show, we decided it'd be a nice treat for the subscribers to get solo shows from the rest of the hosts. And uh, this is the first of mine. Now, I just wanted to say before we start that. Well, I am drunk, and I will be recounting, I guess you'd call it history. This is not quote-unquote drunk history, and I am uh, absolutely legally indemnified against any kind of suit from Funny or Die or Comedy Central or any of those motherfuckers. So, let us begin. I thought it would be an interesting thing for you guys to talk about a figure... From American history who's been stunningly forgotten, like a guy who I literally didn't hear about even existed until about three or four years ago, and who I think is an incredibly interesting figure, and also one who ties into an entire uh, emerging left-wing scholarship about the Civil War that uh, we've actually had discussed on the show when our our, our handsome uh, socialist boy Matt Karp came on, and that is... The emerging attempt by a group of scholars, Sven Beckert, Ed Baptist, Walter Johnson, and the aforementioned Carp, to upend the traditional Marxist understanding of the Civil War, your Eric Hobsbawm's and your Eugene Genovese's, who claim that the Civil War was essentially a brutally economic... Uh, action by which the emerging bourgeois of the northern free states swept away the feudal vestiges of slavery in the south to make way for corporate capitalism as we now know it. Um, That held sway for many years even on the left, uh, sort of like a dark mirror of the Dunning School lost cause fetish that dominated mainstream understandings of the Civil War until the 60s. This version of the Civil War, uh, their slavery and the mora- morality around slavery didn't really have anything to do with anything. It was really about the fact that the slave system of the Old South was not compatible with the emerging networks of, uh, of capitalist trade that were coming into the scene thanks to the Industrial Revolution. Uh, but the new, the new scholarship claims no. Slavery was incredibly dynamic. Slavery was incredibly profitable. And we look back and assume that slavery was essentially moribund and doomed because, basically because the South lost the Civil War. And a world in which the, the South was able to prevail and maintain its economy is one that we can't really conceive of, but uh, one that might have changed the course of Western civilization in ways that we can't even imagine. And in this retelling, the northern cause, the cause of uh, union, was not merely 
as has been repeated over and over almost catechismically, by generations of disaffected leftists, many of whom read Howard Zinn's uh, People's History of the United States, a cynical exercise in state formation. Uh, the Republican political movement that elected Abraham Lincoln president in 1860 was animated by a genuine anti-slavery sentiment, and that the Union Army of the Civil War was a liberatory body that was doing sort of an almost unprecedented thing of acting in the interests of these uh, bond bondage people. Now, that's a controversial point of view, obviously, um, and there's still plenty of people who argue on the left who argue in favor of the old uh, sort of economically deterministic point of view, I guess you'd call it. Um, but to what I'm going to... I will say that I'm broadly sympathetic to the new the new framework, um, but I think there's a figure from the Civil War who brings together a number of currents in historiography, but also in our dream of what America can be, to be really corny about it, but who has completely been forgotten by history. And so I want to talk to you guys today about him. I'm talking about August Willich, a Civil War general who also happened to be a member of the first generation of avowed communists to emerge from the revolutions of 1848 in Europe alongside Marx and, figure, and, and Engels and figures like that, who came to the United States, fought in the Civil War, had some pretty amazing encounters during the Civil War, and who stands as a figure of representation for an entire imagination of the Civil War as a step, a revolutionary step, I guess you'd say, from the fr uh, French Revolution to the American Revolution to the fights for labor and civil rights in the 20th century, as opposed to just one more, as opposed to the Civil War just being one more uh, sort of dreary movement in the displacement of feudalism by capitalism, which is, as I said, how it has generally been conceived of by even leftists uh, in, uh, in the 20th century. So I wanted to talk to you guys about him because I find him amazing and fascinating, and I genuinely was conceiving, before Chapo took off, I was conceiving of writing a biography of him until my absolute infacility with languages and my inability to internalize German to the point that I could translate it made it very difficult for me to continue with the project. I was thinking of, making a bi of writing a biography of this guy because there really is not an English language biography that covers his entire life astoundingly because to my mind he's one of the most fascinating figures of both the revolutions of 14, 1848 and also of the Civil War. So instead of that, instead of sitting down and writing thousands of words and hundreds of pages that no one would likely read, I get to talk into a microphone to you guys about Willich. 
and maybe one of you, some bilingual uh, history genius, will take it upon yourself to write that biography because let me know. I would love to read it. So, August Willich, born in East Prussia in 1810 to a family of Prussian aristocracy. In fact, his father had been a uh, hussar uh, during the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, I think we all know what we imagine when we imagine the Prussian aristocracy. He would have been a perfect example of those rigid, upright men who uh, went from uh, their land holdings, their junker land holdings, into the Prussian military, sort of on the conveyor belt of... of Sort of stations of the cross, I guess you'd say, of, of social advancement. But a funny thing happened with uh, with Herr Willich. Even though he was to the manor born, as it were, even though he was accepted as a artillery officer in the Prussian military, he resigned his commission in 1846. Because somewhere along the way, he had had that magical Saul on the road to Damascus moment that many of us leftists have had, where he realized that the received wisdom of his class was a lie, and that there was another uh, more emancipatory future to be had if people wanted it, and he wanted to be part of that. So he resigned his commission in 1846 and became an itinerant carpenter of avowed Republican convictions. And that's where he was when the revolutions of 1848 kicked off. And the revolutions of 1848 were sort of a signal moment in uh, 19th century history where people across Europe, from the German Confederation, France, uh, Austria-Hungary, Italy, rose up in a series of, of... rebellions against uh, aristocratic rule and royalty and the vestiges of feudalism that Napoleon had been unable to sweep away. Uh, You can really kind of think of it as an Arab Spring without Twitter or Facebook. And when these rebellions happened, Willich made his way to the Palantite and to the Rhineland. Uh, regions in uh, southwestern Germany that were controlled by the uh, the Kingdom of Prussia, which he had been born into as a as a member of their aristocracy, and these people rose up in opposition to all forms of monarchy and all forms of inherited privilege, and they formed military units to defend their rebellion. Willich became a commander in, in one of those units. At the same time, uh, Karl Marx, uh, you guys might have heard of him, who uh, had at that point been sort of exiled from Germany and was living in Belgium, came back to Cologne, Germany to be the editor of a... Uh, com- at this point, communism was in a, in a proto-state, but he was editor of a magazine that had was crucial in sort of generating the idea of what communism would be among this huge group of dissatisfied rebels 
of various ideological stripes. And while Marx was manning a printing press in Cologne, Willich was commanding a military uh, unit uh, to defend against Prussian incursion. And he ended up uh, fighting several engagements against the Prussian military. Uh, uh, by the way, his aide-de-camp and sort of uh, first-in-command com- uh, subordinate was none other than a young, red-faced, and incredibly enthusiastic Frederick Engels, who uh, was actually booted out of one of the cities that he went to to help uh, with their defenses when he replaced sort of Republican flags on a barricade with red ones. Uh, That was seen as inflammatory, and he actually got booted out, and he got kicked around by a bunch of different groups before he ended up being second... Uh, the aide aide de camp to to Willich, and uh, they fought for a year or so to maintain these revolutionary formations in southwestern Germany until they were eventually uh, basically crushed. But and one of the reasons they were crushed is that many of these military groups were led by clerks and, and total dilettantes who didn't really know what they were doing. Uh, Willich is remembered in most correspondences about the 1848 rebellion as basically the only really capable and competent revo- re- revolutionary commander. And uh, the army he fought with in the Rhineland against the Prussians is thought to be the very first army in um, human history to fight under a red flag. Uh, as opposed to under some the flag of a principality or nation, and that that's significant considering what comes next. But even though Willich acquitted himself well, and Engels acquitted himself relatively well as his aide de camp, eventually they were defeated by the overwhelming power of the Prussians, and uh, everybody who was a member of these revolutionary movements, from Marx to Engels to Willich was forced to flee the continent. Most of them ended up in London. And it was in London where the next phase of August Willich's revolutionary life came to be. Uh, And it's actually very fascinating because he ended up in incredibly intense confrontation with Karl Marx uh, because... At that point, the incohate revolutionary ideas that had been percolating during the 1848 revolution had crystallized into an idea of communism. Because remember that the um, Communist Manifesto, written by Engels and Marx, was written uh, the very year that the rebellions began in 1848. So when Engels and Marx and Willich went to London, there was now an ideology to sort of organize around. And the organization that they organized with was called the Communist League. But if you're at all familiar with attempts among people on Twitter to 
arrive at some sort of ideological modus vivendi, you'll know that even though these guys were all basically on the same side, when it came down to the question of deciding on tactics and deciding on a program, they immediately butted heads. So the early 1850s, 1850 to about 1852, was a time where Willich and Marx and a bunch of other people, expats in London, were battling each other over control of the first sort of self-consciously communist organization in Europe called the Communist League. And they fought like cats in a sack over questions of strategy and ideology. One of the big ones was is that Marx was a more methodical leader, a more academic and, and theoretical leader who wanted to build organizations uh, within the matrix of politics as we understand it, whereas Willich was much more a sort of a precursor of the idea of individual violent action. I think if he'd been born a little bit later, he might have been a, one of the anarchists of the late 19th century who were fans of the propaganda of the deed, the idea of an individual making the decision to throw a wrench into the machinery of capitalism and allowing it to be destroyed through that uh, and they fought over these questions for a number of years. Uh, most famous and amusing incident happened when Willich actually challenged Karl Marx to a duel. And Marx, being a bookish nerd who didn't want to get murdered by a trained Prussian military officer, declined a young Marx uh, protege named Schramm took up the glove and accepted the dual invitation and Willich and Mar and Schramm took uh, a boat across the English Channel to the continent where it was easier to duel without getting arrested and in Antwerp held a duel they stood paces, paces paced across from each other turned around and shot and Willich unsurprisingly, one. He put a bullet in the head of Schramm, who still survived, but was, as you'd understand, pretty fucked up by the experience. Around this time, the Communist League split into Willich and Marx factions. The two lobbied insults and accusations at each other, uh, which all came to a head in 1853 with the Cologne Communist Trial. Or in 1852, I'm sorry. Uh, where the, the Prussian government arrested 11 members of the Communist League who were still in Germany and charged them with participation in the uprising of 1848 using the information of a number of confidential informants, both in Germany and in among the expat community in Europe. Uh, everyone was con Seven of the 11 were convicted and sentenced to terms. Nobody was executed or anything, but... It ended up being a watershed moment for the, the German expat community because Willich was basically implicated in having a friendship with a figure who was accused by many, including Marx, of being a police spy and very well may have been a police spy who helped supply information that led to the convictions during the Cologne trial. Because the thing about the Marx-Willich 
confrontation in London is that Willich had a huge advantage among organizing workers in London in the very simple fact that, well, Karl Marx, in his personal life, fetishized bourgeois propriety, him and his beloved wife, Jenny Westphalen, living in uh, urban sort of bourgeois style with rented rooms and nice furniture and a hired maid who, parenthetically, Marx actually knocked up while Jenny was on the continent at one point, uh, which kind of put him in a remove from the workers of London. Willich actually lived in a workman's barracks in London during this time with a bunch of other expatriate German craftsmen. And that gave him sort of an advantage among among the rank and file that Marx couldn't match. But the Cologne Communist trial gave Marx an opportunity basically to totally undercut Willick from that point on because, hey, fuck, you are hanging out with informants. Fuck you. And he actually published a pamphlet called The Night of Noble Consciousness, which was an extended... Uh, teardown of Willich. Uh, it's actually pretty funny the degree to which early Marxist writing is about just clap clapbacks. Uh, Marx was like the original king of clapbacks. Uh, and a lot of his early writing is denouncing these figures who have basically been lost to history, like Max Stirner and Bruno Bauer and August Willich. Uh, and to a degree, you can understand it because, well, we can look back and say, Marx, what are you doing? You're the figure who emerges triumphant as the theoretician of the 19th century. There is no way of knowing that at the time. I mean, the guy had a real interest in maintaining his position. So, but Nice and Noble Consciousness is one of many books and pamphlets that he wrote at the time trying to undercut rivals to his claim as leader of the emerging communist movement. And if you actually read Night of Noble Consciousness and you have any experience with Twitter arguments, it'll come to you in a flash what's going on. It's a classic uh, exchange of accusations. You said this, but that's a lie. You said I said this, but that's a lie. I didn't say that. I said this, and you actually said this. Anyone who has ever involved themselves in a tedious Twitter spat about minute points of ideology or personal conduct will absolutely recognize what was going on. The actual details are incredibly mundane and meaningless, but the upshot is is that because Willich could credibly be attached in personal relationships to someone who might have been an informant to the Prussian state, he was discredited. And shortly after the Cologne trial, he moved to the United States. It's actually an interesting counterfactual to imagine because uh, Marx and Engels actually considered moving to the United States at this very same time. In fact, Karl Marx made an attempt to move to Texas that was foiled because while he was living in London, he was still a a citizen of... uh, of Prussia, and they would not give him permission to uh, to move. Basically, they wouldn't give him the the visa requirements necessary to go to the United States. They were planning to move to Texas, 
And I've always thought it would be a really interesting historically counterfactual short story or novel to have Marx and Engels living amongst the German settlers of Texas of the 1860s participating in an anti-Confederate guerrilla movement. Like Engels, who was sort of considered to be a, a, a military whiz and, and autodidact, uh, playing the part of a of a of commander, well, Marx is in a buckboard with a with a printing press putting out uh, inflammatory pamphlets. So, any, yeah, anyone has that? I, anyone inspired by that? Go ahead, go nuts. I think that'd be pretty good as a story. But anyway, well, while Marx was unable to move to the United States, Willich did. He moved to the U.S. His first stop was Brooklyn, where he worked at the naval yards uh, using his carpentry skills. But after a short stint there, he moved to Cincinnati, where he became the editor of a a German-language Republican newspaper called the Republikaner that that sold the, the party line of the emerging Republican Party. And he was editor of that throughout the late 1850s. And during that time, he was active in both uh, labor movements and also anti-slavery. Like any good communist, he was virulently anti-slavery. He shared the stage on a number of occasions with with Peter Clark, uh, who's basically like the first black socialist to reach any kind of recognition in the United States. He was a school teacher uh, in Southern Ohio. Uh, he went to Wilberforce University, uh, and he was sort of a circuit-riding socialist uh, orator uh, in, the, in the very early era of socialism. And him and Willich uh, shared the stage a number of times in Cincinnati after he moved there uh, on the causes of abolition and also uh, workers' rights. So that's where Willich is, plugging out the Republicaner when the Civil War begins. Uh, He had military experience, obviously, as a Prussian officer, and also having fought during the 1848 revolution. Uh, parenthetically, there were a number of people in the from the 1848 revolution in Germany who moved to the United States afterwards. Franz Siegel, Karl Schurz, who ended up getting commissions in the United States military. Most of them were shitty soldiers, to say the least. They sucked. They were political appointees. They basically just fucking took up space. Willich, on the other hand, ended up being one of the best brigadier leaders of the Western theater. Um, He had a number of innovations during his time in the Civil War. He taught his soldiers something called advanced fire, which is kind of fascinating because it totally went against military doctrine at the time. Instead of As you'd seen, if you've ever watched a Civil War movie, everybody's standing in a line and firing and reloading and firing in a line. Uh, Willich taught his troops to do something called advanced firing, where one line of troops would fire 
And then while they were reloading, the troops behind them would step forward and fire. And by that point, then troops who had fired would be ready to step forward and fire so that while you were shooting, you were moving forward. This is something that he was probably taught uh, when he was in the Prussian military, but uh, totally unheard of in American military doctrine. And during his early days in the Union Army, he used it to his advantage. Uh, he also brought with him, as his army moved and as his troops moved, a, uh, a kiln to make bread so that his troops would always have fresh bread. And he also conducted seminars on socialism to the largely German enlisted men who were under his command. So he was literally like sort of the model of the uh, politically engaged military leader that you might see in, in, in like a, a Maoist text. In the, in the American Civil War, that's the thing to remember. And he ended up fighting in a number of really important, crucial engagements in the Western theater of the American Civil War. He was at the Battle of Chickamauga, where he was one of the unit. His was one of the units that held out with General Thomas uh, at Snodgrass Hill to uh, prevent a total Union rout after the absolute bungles of General Rosecrans. But most excitingly and most dramatically, his troops and him himself were there at the breaking of the siege of Chattanooga. This is, in my mind, one of the coolest, to use that kind of bloodless phrase, moments of the American Civil War. So after the Union was defeated at Chatt Chickamauga, they retreated to the city of Chattanooga, at which point they were besieged by Braxton Bragg's Confederate troops. And during the siege, uh, U.S. Grant, who had not yet gone to the east to fight with Robert E. Lee, came into the city to supervise uh, the Army of the Cumberland. And he was there when they conceived of the decision to break through out of the siege. And what that meant was he essentially sent a, a bunch of troops out to clear the Confederates from something called uh, Missionary Ridge, this low slope that was at the, one of the crucial points in the encirclement. And it was a complicated multi-stage military operation, but the first stage of which is that he sent troops to clear out rifle pits at the base of, of uh, Missionary Ridge, and then to await, basically, reinforcements and further instructions. And Willich's troops were right there. And Willich was right there, at the tip of the spear, when they cleared out the rifle pits, which they did with ease because being, uh, being pickets, there weren't a lot of troops there. But the problem was when they got there and they got into the rifle pits, they were getting shot at from the top of Missionary Ridge and essentially, spontaneously, the troops made the decision that, well, we're not going to sit here and get shot at. We're going to move. And they basically followed the retreating Confederates who had 
abandoned the rifle pits up Missionary Ridge to its crown. And because they were right on the heels of the Confederates, the Confederates at the top of the ridge held their fire long enough that they were able basically to uh, launch a devastating volley that cut through the first ranks. And then the Confederate army basically broke and fled at that point. And there's a great anecdote where Willich, who was amongst his troops when they did, when, at the very top when they did this, when they got to the top of Missionary Ridge, said, My boys, my boys, you are killing me mit joy. So that was sort of the highlight of Willich's career. Shortly after that time, he was injured in the shoulder, and he spent the rest of the war supervising the defense of Cincinnati uh, against any kind of Confederate invasion, which never came. And then after the war, he was a comptroller for Hamilton County in Cincinnati, and he was an officer of um, note in the Army of the Cumberland Veterans Group. But at that point, he had reached an age where, I guess you could say, the energy had kind of lapsed. Uh, Late in his life, in 1870, he traveled back to Prussia, uh, where he actually volunteered his services for the Prussian military in the Franco-Prussian War. Uh, and because of his age and past communist associations, he was turned down. Then he returned to Ohio. He lived in a small town in sort of uh, west-central Ohio called St. Mary's, where he was a sort of local figure of color. He was a member of like a local Shakespeare society. He never married, never had children. A number of historians have come to the conclusion that he was actually gay, although, you know, there's no smoking gun on that. Uh, but he ended up dying uh, in 1878 at the age of 67 and was buried in St. Mary's, Ohio. So, there you have it. The tale of gay communists in war general. You probably didn't know that there was one of those before this began, and now you do. And I don't know if it really means anything other than the fact that there's a heritage of radical activism in America that we kind of forget at our own peril. And that I think it does us all good to reflect on sometimes and to think about and I hope in the future to bring you guys more of these, some more unsung figures in radical American history who, if nothing else, can remind you that you're not alone and that throughout this country's bloody, stupid history, there have been people who have recognized that there was another way to be and have tried to make that better world possible. Goodbye. Goodbye.